rock and roll. Uh, so glad that you decided to join us in the studio. Um, I, uh, I've learned a lot of interesting things about you from these little pieces of paper that we call briefs and just met you and shook your hand, you know, super awesome to meet you and to have you here. Um, I hear you're a quadruplet. I am okay. so nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I am a quadruplet. Yeah. Yeah. How, um, how, how did that happen? <laughs> Fertility drugs. Okay, there um, you go. My parents had one son. We have an older brother, uh -huh. and um, they were trying to have a second. And the doctor called them and said, "You're having twins," and then said that you're having triplets, and then said you're having quadruplets. Oops. Oops. And so all of a sudden, they had five kids under the age of two, which sounds terrifying. Totally. Um, but as a kid, so we were known as the Wolf Pack growing up oh. and um, it was actually really fun. I mean, That's we have this great. amazing footage of us just kind of like um, my parents would put us in this like fenced in area uh -huh. and pour Cheerios on the ground. And it's just like the, all of these kind of like little kids running around animalistically eating. Um, but yeah, I think it was it was for us. It was very competitive, mm -hmm. um, fun and chaotic. So I have four boys. Wow. It didn't happen the same way. Uh, and, uh, I remember just what it was like having four boys under the age of five. So wow. five children under the age of two. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Four is a lot as well. You know, I would say that, uh, your parents need an award. That they is, um, do. that is true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, uh, you know, what, what did it feel like growing up? Like it, was it just like, you just had a close camaraderie with your brothers and sisters yeah, well, I was actually the only girl, so I have an older brother, oh, and then wow. there are three of us in the in the set. Um, yeah, I mean, we're still really close. It's pretty special um, to go through life kind of like doing the exact same thing at the exact same time. Yes, um, I'm sometimes jealous of single births. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that they like got to have that experience with their parents, but mm -hmm. like we had this like whole crew, and um, you know, we'd always like play a uh, play football together or whatever. I was a total tomboy. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, um, how do you feel like that may that that lifestyle and that experience affected you professionally? I think it did affect me professionally quite a bit. Um, obviously, when you're in kind of a set of quadruplets, well, I think I was forced to learn how to be self-reliant mm. very early on. I had to fight mm. for my rights and quite literally my space from the womb. Um, Are you competitive? I am okay. pretty competitive. I mean, I'm I'm both, but I think like I had to be to survive and in our family and you probably have this with your uh with your kids but it was really important for us to all be different and so this it was this really intense desire to be uh unique and so i spent a lot of time trying to figure out okay i'm the only girl but like uh what else am i like what are my strengths and weaknesses and kind of like trying to figure out very early on what is my purpose like why am i here mm -hmm. and so um i think it like then led to this kind of like quest of mine to connect to that, maybe be more open to less traditional career paths. Um, also being the only girl was was pretty wild. Yeah. I remember being very aware of kind of the like gender from very early age, five, six, seven, where my brothers would do something and then I would do the same exact thing and then we'd have different outcomes. And sometimes it was to my benefit and sometimes it wasn't. But I remember just thinking, wow, why is that? Like there was just like a, a different set of messaging. And so that 
awareness, I can kind of like directly relate to my career path because just kind of like that question around gender has been in a lot of the things that I've done and certainly connects me to the mission behind the company that I've built. I, I love that. Tell us about Odetta. Like, you know, the, what is the gig economy done and how have you sort of uh, connected to it and done something meaningful with it? Sure. Like that, with that kind of rising. You know, yeah, gig economy is is amazing. So as as most people know, they've interacted with it in their day to day, but it's essentially just a digital platform that connects freelancers, contractors with their customers. And so, I took an Uber today, and um, you know had a driver, and um, I've stayed in Airbnb, and I have a host. And um, what Odetta does, and I can share a little bit more about why we do it, but essentially it connects a network of these data analysts and account managers with tech companies. And so um, using the internet to facilitate those connections. Yeah, is it through like an app? It's not website? an app, it's, it's just like a kind of website. Okay, all right, very interesting. Well, what's a typical freelance project for a uh, an Odetta freelancer? Yeah, so we um, are usually sourcing and cleaning data. Um, so a very common request from our clients would be, hey, I need a list, a customer list. So maybe they're building a business and they wanna know, um, I'd love to have a thousand companies that look like this that I can do sales and marketing on. Um, or they maybe want a list of social media influencers or anyone that can help them like grow. And so we'll build them that database mm -hmm. of those companies with all of their contact information. Um, we also do quite a bit of what's called data annotation. And I didn't know that what this was before starting the company, but um, a lot of these tech companies are doing what's called machine learning, which is a type of, type of artificial intelligence. And so to build these models, they need what's called ground truth data. And that often requires a lot of humans to be tagging and labeling and classifying data. And mm -hmm. so we do quite a bit of that for our companies. So you do the legwork to get them started? Yes. Okay, that's really cool. Well, what's... Uh... <clears throat> How do your customers find you and what kind of customers are they? So um, I would say now it's a lot of word of mouth or existing customers that um, maybe they change companies and then they will hire us. Um, we also do B2B sales on a typical type of customer, but they're mostly tech companies, kind of early uh, 10 to 50 people and they're looking for help. They may have been running these processes already uh, in-house and they're at a point where they're looking to find a team that can run them more cost-effectively. Okay, that's, uh, I like the call out to the machine learning because, um, you know, the thing that's most interesting is you you can start to acquire the data machine learning wise, but you, I like how the, what you said, the ground, what type of Ground data? truth. Ground truth. Yeah. To aggregate all of that, I think is really important, and just how um, invasive or how human inner, like uh, how much human energy is being put into getting that machine learning started. Just so much. It's really. I mean, it's like the future is really about. There's all of these kind of like bots and artificial intelligence, but actually, a lot of people say all these jobs are going to be lost, but more jobs are actually getting created through all of the machine learning. It's incredible. It's the job they're changing, really. They really just are. different jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, okay. Candidly, I've been a user of uh, Fiverr and oh, I've okay. been a user of yep. Upwork. Yes. So 
you know, uh, it used to be Odesk and a couple of others. So sure, like, I've heard of them. You know, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so how are you different? How's your group different than uh, those those other apps? Okay, so um, at highest level, we're team based and project managed, and then we have a specialization in data, and then we have a mission that I'll talk about. But um, if you've used any of those, it's pretty similar. Kind of like you go to Upwork or Fiverr. You post a project and within seconds, it's pretty incredible. You have hundreds of people who are bidding for that project. And uh, what you do is then you go through and you might interview people or find like the best person, best designer or whatnot. And then you would be managing them and checking their work. Um, and the quality can be really good. You can get lucky um, or it can be very inconsistent. So with Odetta, you just post a project. And then what we do is we kind of figure out the rest. So we'll build a team, we connect you with an account manager, and then that account manager will kind of build the scope of work, uh, build the team, run the team, mm. manage the team, and, and kind of run that workflow for the client. Oh, that's interesting. So instead of like the system and the application, because that's what I'm used to is this, it's basically infrastructure and no oversight right. with, the, with Fiverr and, you know, it's just it's just this open marketplace. Hopefully it works. And it's amazing. There are a lot of types of jobs where that's exactly where you want to go because you have a very specific thing and you want the best in the world and you want to, them to all be competing for that job. Other things, though, that, you know, there's just like a certain way that it needs to get done. And why not also, as part of that infrastructure, have a team that is checking the quality and training the team mm -hmm. um, because it should save you time. And so we work most of our clients like they um, they want the cost effectiveness, but they also just don't want to be managing the team. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like um, so you work quality and oversight is a big part of what you guys are yes. doing, but then at the same time? uh the the inspection and uh the outcome is largely better because of your capabilities i think so especially when it becomes specialized if we've done something hundreds of time over and over again then we start to have software and tooling around it and templates and so you can kind of just go there and know that it's going to be a certain level of quality and you don't have to worry about it okay that's really interesting so you mentioned the mission thing why don't you, uh, how, how did you kind of realize this opportunity and how was the mission sort of born? Yeah, so I should say um, that I was on the hunt for a startup idea for many years. I was really on the hunt. I had okay. been working at a tech company and was working on a number of different ideas on the side. And I wanted to build something in the female economy space. And what that means is I wanted to build products and services for women that didn't exist yet because there was some sort of market bias or failure. And so, um, and I was looking some, for something that could be kind of a large technology company. Yeah. And um, I happened to meet someone who was on the board of Upwork. And okay. he shared with me, or really kind of pointed me in the direction of the gig economy. And um, I did some research and I realized that 75% of the women getting educated in the Middle East and South Asia were not working. They were not working in the, the kind of like the labor pool, but they weren't also on these freelancing platforms. And so right away when I learned that stat, I was like, wow, there must be something wrong with work. And that then meant that hundreds of millions of women who were fluent in English, you know, kind of super qualified, had just kind of disappeared. And so I started thinking about that and, and really wondering why and then somewhat fortuitously, um, two weeks later, I was at a class reunion and I was catching up with a classmate of mine who grew up in Pakistan. And um, she helped me answer that question of why. Um, essentially what we did was we 
posted on our Facebook page. It was just a very simple message. Um, we're if you are you know highly ambitious and looking for kind of remote work, sign up here. And within 48 hours, we had something like 300 women sign up to our um, little Facebook, you know, That's kind amazing. of sign up. And these women were from uh, some of the best MBA programs in Pakistan, the PhD programs. But we also had women from Turkey and Oman and Jordan. And so I was floored and uh, I was like, gosh, there is something here. And then my next step was, I want to go meet these women in person. Okay. So yeah, I'm, I, it's like uh, uh, a lot of your travels, right? Like how, how, what was kind of the most impactful trip for you to make this discovery, right? In the, in Asia? Well, I must say that I had, I had spent time in Asia and some time in the Middle East, but I had never been to most of the countries that I was all of a sudden looking at, which mm -hmm. were places where women were highly educated and not working. And um, and so Pakistan was an obvious kind of next one. Um, but in terms of going there, so I still had a job. So I, I wanted to just kind of take vacation and, um, you know, organize a visit. And so that's what I did. I um, started getting a tourist visa and planning a trip. OK, and what happened on the first trip? Um, well, so I um, well, first I had to kind of answer the question, you know, was it was it safe for me to go? Mm. And um, I got really mixed reports on that. I reached out to a number of people who were either from there or who had friends who lived there or worked there. And um, I would say this is where I was like less data motivated. Mm -hmm. um, most people said it was not safe or mixed. Um, and so I just ended up listening to the people who said it was safe. I found a few people who said it was completely safe to go. And so I got a tourist uh, visa. It took me three or four months to get a visa to be able to go. And um, I'll never forget, I had, I landed on, um, it was a flight from Doha to Islamabad. And on the flight, there were a ton of foreigners. I was, you know, kind of feeling relieved because I had, Prior to going, I had to turn my phone off because I had so many people who were concerned about my safety trying to intervene. And um, essentially, the air hostess uh, started calling up names. And pretty quickly, all of the um, foreigners, non-Pakistanis, were called up. And they were escorted to these armored vehicles and uh, kind of like sirens. And then they were off. And I was left on the plane. Um, you know, and I was by myself visiting um, with the tourist visa. And so I was, wow, oh no. And so I went to the airport and um, there was a line for a tourist visa, which was empty. So it was just me. And I, my <laughs> ride was late, um, an hour and a half late. I arrived really late at night. So I was just kind of standing in the airport being like, what am I doing? Um, but ultimately, um, I'm so glad that I listened to those people who told me that it was safe because it was safe. and. I think um, certainly if you're kind of like traveling in the way that that I was traveling. And so I ended up just going to staying in this hotel and meeting all of the women who had applied to this Facebook post. And I met hundreds of women and um, they were amazing. I mean, it was just like these super smart, um, like very humble, just really wanting to um, kind of like work really hard. And I think the thing that struck me about every single conversation that I had with these women was just like, they just wanted to prove to the world that they mattered. And there was this intensity, intensity about it. 
And I was like, oh my God, like I need to help connect them to the broader market because, um, because they are suffering. I should say that Pakistan is the third worst place in the world to be female. Um, I heard their stories and was listening to just kind of like the harassment that they were experiencing in the office, on the bus. Um, they were getting fired because they were pregnant. They were getting not hired because one day they may be pregnant. Um, they would get their um, doctorate degrees because education is very valued. And the in-laws would say they could not work. So there was still like this very significant stigma around being a working mother. It was very much get educated and then um, have your children and then serve the family, move in with the in-laws. And so I was listening to them. Obviously we come from such different places. Different but cultures for sure. For sure. Um, but like the, yeah, there was just something there. I felt like, I felt like, wow, um, you know, I, I want to build something to to help them. Wow. That's uh, a pretty wild story. I just want to confirm you were on a you were on the plane going to Pakistan. Yes. Was it when you landed that everybody was escorted off? Yes. Or was, all of the other non-Pakistanis. No, it was when I landed. And why why were you left? Well, because I was rogue. I mean, I I didn't I wasn't affiliated with like the World Bank or any of these other places okay. that had gone you know kind of like in a very organized manner with their security. You know, because most people go with like their security protocols, um, but I was there just to test the water. Yeah, seems serendipitous, right, for yeah. you to 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 uh, be the only person to be able to get through like that. Yeah, and I, I, so you you had a few hundred you met hundreds of women that happened to find this uh facebook group post that yeah. was basically a poll you yeah. know hey so if you're interested yeah. kind of like you know fill this out and you went to go meet all of these women yes and so what was that meeting like you know are you in a big building like and there's just hundreds of women there or did you have like individual interviews or what was did you like host an event no i didn't i mean okay. it was kind of more casual it was um a bunch of one-on-ones Okay. Or like organized like okay. every like half an hour or Got something. It. Got it. Um, and did you have someone help you? Yeah. So the same classmate who had helped me place this on our Facebook page, she happened to be in Pakistan at the time. And so we just kind of were sitting in the hotel lobby and then every hour or so a new woman would get dropped off by her family and they would kind of run in and then tell us the story. And so um, we had a particular format where we were kind of just asking them about their lives. And then at the end, um, we actually had these kind of uh, note cards that we were keeping that was kind of a list of the things that they were talking about that was important to them because we were kind of on a design trip. I mean, I was trying to figure out like, okay, like what do they care about? Why does the thing that they need not exist? And what is that thing? Mm -hmm. You know, I had no idea. You know, I'd never done anything like this before. So um, those meetings were really informative. I mean, obviously on an emotional level, I was like, okay, I'm gonna Invested, help them. Yeah. Um, but also these women knew what they wanted. So mm -hmm. it was, it was kind of pretty clear what we needed to build. That is so, so awesome, uh, to, to hear how that kind of, uh, got off the ground and got started and how many conversations you were able to have. I think, so you're working, where were you working at the time and you're taking a vacation to go do this, <laughs> right? Yeah. And what happened, right? What happened after? I was working. I had um, I was at a fintech company and I was running sales for them. And um, I kind of just went back to my job, but um, I was living in New York at the time. Um, 
But during that trip, something changed. I realized that like I would build this company. I didn't know when or how or what that looked like. Um, and um, so I ended up deciding to um, stay around for about nine months so I could earn more money. Okay. So I could have more of a runway and I wanted to wait for my bonus. And so <laughs> I um, so I kind of did that, but it was a really hard time for me because I was like already on to the next thing. Yeah, you're and torn running this team. And um, so that was a really tough time where I was like trying to do both, but I didn't want to tell uh, anyone that I was leaving just yet. And, um, but I decided to really just like go on this adventure. I, um, I quit my job. This is nine months later, um, got rid of my things and I moved to the country of Jordan. Oh, my <laughs> um, which what Sounds made you pick kind Jordan? of random, but I had never really kind of known much about the country of Jordan. It's a beautiful country. So oh, yeah. Pakistan. Yeah. Um, but um, truth is, I had met someone who was from Jordan. I'd been connected to her um, and she while I was thinking about this idea, it's funny how like once you have an idea, just like all of these people start to appear in yeah. your in your path, maybe you're more open to it. But I just like, I had all these different kind of like teachers or helpers who started appearing for me. But one of them was told me, you should go to Jordan and I can introduce you to a lot of people there. And um, and so I said, okay, why not? Um, and Jordan's interesting because 90% of the women who get educated um, and more women than men get educated, they drop out right after that education. And so, and it's a pretty safe country. So I know I could kind of like just around and um ask questions and so that's what i did i rented an airbnb Except the borders the borders yeah, oh, yeah. you're kind of like in the yeah. mix of mm -hmm. there's a lot going on um but yeah just such generous people and i i rented this airbnb and i was going around to the local universities and just kind of like meeting people and trying to figure out really my question was um i knew that there were really smart women and i kind of had an idea for maybe what we would build but I didn't know yet um, what skill set to focus on. Like, should we do design? Should we do computer science? Um, and so I, I just was asking those questions. And it was awesome time. I learned a lot. Um, I think, meanwhile, I was also trying to figure out um, the demand side, essentially, mm -hmm. the clients, like who would pay for this? Mm -hmm. And I had been working in tech. so. I knew kind of I had a number of friends who worked at tech startups. I love I love people who work at tech startups. I think that it's a lot of people who are um, I, I wanted to kind of um, sell to tech startups because I thought that they would be very open minded about something like this. And yeah. they, they needed they need work to get done. I mean, they are moving fast. And so um, I I ended up um, calling a number, having a number of conversations with people who worked at these startups and asked them what um what kind of thing or or service would they be interested in outsourcing and really at the time it was it was very clear all roads led to data it was kind of like mm -hmm. the people were talking a lot about machine learning artificial intelligence data science and so i thought okay well we're going to build something that's going to be in service of that industry that's so interesting because uh i would say um it, so any type of marketplace, right? So I think that's another thing that would be really good to talk about is agency yes. versus marketplace, mm -hmm. right? Would you consider Odetta more of an agency or more of a marketplace? More of an agency. Yeah. We're, we're what's considered a managed marketplace. 
Okay. Because market the marketplace effect is so hard to start. Because yep. you have to draw talent and yep. demand at the same time. And that point of convergence yep. is really hard to manage. And crossing the chasm into scale Long is like a really, really slog. hard one. Yeah. So so um so you're trying to get kind of initial demand and you've got a hunch and and, and likely uh, the talent pool that you've assessed. Yep. That's like, okay, so data and data management. So talk to me about that point of convergence, how you sort of thought about this business model and how, yeah. it, how it was born. I mean, it is interesting. I I read a lot about marketplaces and was a bit intimidated by just like the intensity of capital that seemed to be required. And I kind of thought, well, let's just like try to be useful for a few groups of people and i thought a little bit less i was like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna not focus as much as, as like the grand vision of oh, like this is what we're gonna do to build the world but uh, or change the world it was a little bit more what is a model that we can use to just kind of earn revenue and get started and what's the simplest way to get started and so for that it was actually pretty simple we just needed a client mm -hmm. and then we needed a team at the and then we would kind of manage the oversight of that and I will say also that our the team, most of the women that I had met did not want to work directly for clients. They didn't want to be in contact with kind of like foreign people or men or anything. So I knew that there was going to be a massive workforce that was going to be behind the scenes and that it had to be kind of this managed model. Okay. So uh, talk to me about how you, you know, uh, land your first deal and start to, you know, what are some of the discoveries you make on that first deal? Yeah, so it's you always remember your first mm -hmm. your first deal. <laughs> um, I was still in Amman. Um, I was still kind of spending my days uh, recruiting talent, talking to talent. Um, but I had posted on my Facebook page, uh, just kind of, hey, I'm this is what I'm thinking about doing, and a classmate of mine from college reached out and said, hey, I am. I work at this uh, mental health um, company and we need leads. Can you do lead generation for us? And I was like, 100%, my background had been in sales. Yeah. So um, he uh, got on the phone and ex uh, explained what he needed to do. And I said, fantastic. And so I ended up calling one of the women that I had met when I was in Pakistan and her name is Aruj. And um, I had kept her warm this whole time, but mm. it had been about a year since I met her and um, I said, hey, it's go time, are you ready? And she said, yeah, I'm ready. And so that is amazing. it was just uh, legal contracts for both sides and then uh, and then we were off to the races. It was just like that. That's incredible. So um, so you basically, you know, you're using social media and using Facebook, right, to get connections. Uh, how did you start to create a, maybe a more of a flow of demand? Right, yeah, I mean, that's tough, right? It, yeah. It's You're talking tough. to somebody who that is that is like my passion is demand gen, right? Yeah, so demand like gen. Revenue is, marketing is is uh, where I cut my teeth in marketing. Yeah, sure. it is hard, and I think it is the most important. I will say that for six months, I was surprised with how much traction we got, um, mostly through Facebook and LinkedIn, just kind of like posting the concept. People would send us cold contracts. And um, so that was awesome. It was mostly through kind of like personal um, connections or yeah, frankly, social media. Mm -hmm. um, we got 
uh, Google is one of our clients. Like I was going after some big names for the first six months just because I wanted to so be So you're like, going to enterprise sales. You're, you're definitely I was, trying to close I mean, deals. not that that, I thought that that was the best thing for Odetta, but once you can say, hey, we work with Google, then people yeah. are like, oh, you work with Google. And yeah. so- It's a credibility thing. It is. Um, and so our second client was Google. And um, and that was just like one of the best days of my lives when That's I got that incredible. contract. It was um, week three of the business. And um, so from there, it was just, okay, we work with Google and then it was, um, kind of like reaching out to other people who worked at different companies. And um, quickly I realized that the entire business was predicated on our ability to do this. And so I moved to San Francisco to kind of double down. Yeah, and be in the community. Yeah. Well, that's interesting yeah. to, to, to hear like um, just proximity for you, right? Where yeah. you went to the other side of the world, right? To build the talent pool. You got initial demand and then you moved to the other side. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and it turns out, I mean, demand. imagine me building this during the pandemic. I mean, you could have just done it without going anywhere. But for me, it was very important to be authentic in the beginning and actually live where we were trying to serve. And then ultimately, I was like, oh, yeah, OK, like I actually know how to find all of these women through Facebook and uh, just felt like I had to be there in person and just kind of like be taking people out to coffees. Well, what, like, so are you still in San Francisco? I'm not, You're no, not? I was, okay. that was about a year of my life. That was life. about a year, okay. Well, what happened there? Like, did you land more deals? Did you get some tr a different level of traction? We did, I will say it was the first time that I was paying rent. So I got my first apartment and I was kind of like paying rent in Amman, but I just happened to be for the first, however long, nine months, it was just kind of very inexpensive for me. And so I, Revenue looked good. So month six through nine, I was um, pretty impressed with what we were doing. And then I moved into my apartment in the marina in San Francisco. Uh -huh. And um, week two of moving in, we lost our biggest customer. The okay. contract got terminated. It was 75% of our team working for this one customer. And oh, so we had 50 goodness. people at the time. And so um, the contract, essentially the client called up and said we've automated your workflow thank you for your service and i was just like oh my gosh i've um i've i've told i've kind of sold all these promises to all of these women that they're going to have this steady income and of course i had to figure out how i was going to pay rent and so um and i think i had been maybe a little cocky kind of like that it was going so well and so mm. Month nine through 18 were really tough, um, cold, hard sales. I had this moment where I was just kind of like, okay, I are you committed to this business, Catherine? Are you committed? Like what, like, you know, what are you gonna do? And I think it was then that I know, that I realized like, yes, you know, even if I have to move in back with my parents, if they would have me, or get another job and just delay the whole thing by five years and just kind of be doing nights and weekends. I was just like, I'm gonna build this company. Um, yeah, I need, you know, but there's certain things that you need like from a cash flow perspective. Yeah. And so I was like signing and up. You're bootstrapping on, the whole time right now. Whole time. Okay. And so I signed up for all every kind of like gig economy job I could. Um, like I was like a uh, dog walker, all of these other things. And I, I started doing that. And then I was like, wait, hold on. My background was in sales. Um, the best use of my time is just to 
do sales. So I'm so sorry, Catherine, you just have to do sales. And I had to just like, almost like drop the ego and just get comfortable with reaching out to people, even if it seemed a little bit desperate. Like I just had a lot of reserve around using my, like all of my social capital, all these people that I knew and like going around and, you know, asking for their help. But a friend of mine actually was really helpful in helping me see this. And she was like, you're giving them an opportunity to be part of something amazing. And don't ever forget that. And I was like, okay, I'm giving them an opportunity to be part of something amazing. And so here we go. And so I sent thousands of emails and was just in every lobby. I remember this one meeting, I was in this kind of fancy lobby of a Silicon Valley tech company and I'd written to five classmates who worked there. And I think two had replied. And then the three who didn't reply, I saw one of them like, he like ducked his head behind the printer when he saw me and I was just like, oh my goodness, I am this snake peddler selling this dream. What have I done? Um, but, you know, in sales, there's these like really embarrassing stories. Yes. But then there are the amazing ones, right? And like, that's what makes it great. Like you just like start to get good at rejection. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what I learned from that whole kind of nine month experience, it was, it was really hard, um, was just like the power of recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. People had told me that before, but yes. I think like any business, it's right. Why sell something once if you can kind of invent something that someone will buy multiple times and really be kind of like much more targeted. And so I started really focusing on recurring revenue. Um, there were two other things that were amazing from like that kind of harder time, which I realized we were super resource constrained. And so with that, I think like you become really kind of almost smarter and um, you come up with these, you know, like your model gets better um, in some weird way. We, because we didn't have cash, we just got really focused on our customers and we just kind of like, if we couldn't, if they didn't like it, they wouldn't buy more. And so we were just like so in tune with what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And I think we ultimately built a team that just like, nailed exactly what they wanted because like we had to yeah you know we didn't want them to stop working with us and then the second thing was and this is still month nine so i didn't know what kind of business i was building yet i knew that i had a mission but there was a chance that i could have gone the whole silicon valley route which is like okay go and pedal yourself to angel investors mm -hmm. and go get a cto and go get this fancy silicon valley team and um we didn't have cash and um, something inside of me just didn't want to do any of that. And I just decided, let's just build a team that is run by the people that we're serving. And so um, what that meant was we weren't going to hire anyone in, in Silicon Valley in the US at all. What if we could build a team where every single role, sales, marketing, ops, dev was no Denton, one of the women that we're trying to find in these regions that, you know, where they're being overlooked. And we did that um, because that seemed like great from a mission perspective, but more so from a cash flow perspective. And that was really the best thing that we ever did, actually. That's amazing. That's a real commitment to your vision I, 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 and your mission. So I just want to unpack just for a second. Um, the uh, the discovery of your mission to uh, getting it off the ground, getting initial traction, and then you have an explosion, right? You lose you lose a big client, uh, and you really had a crucible moment about whether or not 
you are going to recommit to your mission. And even though you you were you didn't necessarily, I didn't hear you say like, ah, I don't know if I want to do the mission anymore. It's like the business mm-hmm. of it, right? You were still committed to the mission. But like, talk to me through like, uh, what are the things that are going through your mind and how did you sort of muster the recommitment and all of what that meant to kind of pull yourself out of that and and really get to a place of of uh, a second round of traction yeah or the things that were going through your mind what were some of the challenges what were the hard days yeah i mean it's tough right i think the good days are easy and mm. then the tough days are really hard because then you just have to like try harder and i think for me i i don't know i mean i i knew I knew I just kept going back to the mission, to our purpose, to why we were doing this. And it was it, ultimately I realized like it wasn't really about me building something fancy that I had to kind of look at and be like, OK, I'm proud of this. Like I was like, how can I be useful to these women? And by the way, there's 50 of them right here. So we're this team um, need to figure something out. They were kind of like all looking to me um, to figure <laughs> something out. And so I just went to the basics, like, okay, what do I know how to deal, do? I was like, I know how to write emails. Yes. At a very basic level and I can make phone calls and I can drive to a place where I see that there are people who are working and I can sit in a lobby and then I can explain our idea and not in any kind of like formal pitch manner, but like really asking people for advice and just kind of like, I know how to do that over and over again. And I know how to do that even if everyone is looking at me with like this like hint of embarrassment for me. And I just kind of like did that over and over again without getting too fancy. I wasn't like, um, all right, I'm gonna go figure out all of these th- things that I don't know how to do and experiment on all these new things. Like I was like, what are the basics? You know, just build that list. I love that. I think um, anybody with the the story that like uh, any type of entrepreneur story, the number of punches that come along the way that can throw you completely off balance. Um, people, a lot of people will end up giving up. Mm-hmm. What do you think was the thing that was installed in you that kept you going? I think it's true. It's I think back to even that trip to Pakistan when I had everyone telling me like logically you shouldn't go. Um, I think, I think in the beginning you have to have already said that you're listening to yourself, you know, Mm -hmm. like if in those moments when you're building a business, if like there's an ounce of you or even let's say most of you that's building it for maybe someone else, then or then you maybe would listen to the voices outside but i had been so focused on like why am i here like what is my skill to give like what is my purpose and then had been set before me these things that intuitively i was like yes 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 like so i had this path that made sense for me it wasn't just kind of a random thing that i was doing and so because of that, then when an obstacle presents, um, and maybe this is going back to younger years, but it was like I kind of had a, an ethic of, okay, just kind of like 
figure out, you know, go around the obstacle, keep on trying, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, your resourcefulness kicked in. Yeah, resourcefulness kicks in. And I think, um, but that connection to why. And so that's why when I hear people starting businesses and I'm really interested in what is their motivation? And it's not that it doesn't have to be like, okay, the thing that you thought you would do from birth. No one has that. I mean, some people do, but yeah, maybe. Right? It's it is that you've connected to your why mm-hmm. and in a very kind of like fundamental way. And so that then nothing can stop you because you have a will. And I also um, had removed some of the ego around like why I was doing it. So I didn't need things to happen in a certain way or at a certain timeline. Like I didn't I didn't need a company to come in and validate me. I I didn't need a lot of things I just I, I didn't need. Mm-hmm. I had a group of people that I wanted to serve and I felt like I had been given so many things and I had so many sets of experiences that I was dying to have the opportunity to prove myself. Like mm-hmm. I had wasted away so many years working at someone else's company mm-hmm. that like this was like a kernel need. Like Odetto was like something that was deep inside. Like I had to build it. Yeah. I I think uh, something that is really unclear for a lot of people, like when you're talking about what, what I've, I really feel like you're pointing at is you got to a place of an authentic understanding of your purpose. Because if you think about it, there's everybody knows I need a mission. It's mm-hmm. like any company, it's like, well, what's your vision, mission, and your values, right? right? Three, three words. And then it's like, well, what's the difference between a mission and a vision? And people struggle with that. But I think this, this real authentic understanding of your why is really important because if you um, have a mission, there's really, I'm going to say there's probably more, but the two most clear directions that you could go with the mission is a gimmick or a cause. Right. And I think that where uh, people that will continue with their gimmick and it's their hook and it's their shtick and it's it's not really a mission, but they say that that's their mission. What I feel like what you were able to do is you had an undeniable experience that ratified your cause and you built a business around that. And that because you did it there's not one moment that you've been like i questioned my mission no because it was so it was you had really gotten the authenticity out and the ego and all the kind of stuff that you've been able you'd been able to get out i think that's a really important thing for entrepreneurs especially people who are just just starting or people in that crucible moment to go like let me in an authentic way question my why right and what what do you think was um what do you think is like uh maybe the thing that pressure tested your why the most in your story it's constantly pressure tested because i think there's so many different ways to build a business and if you listen to the outside world they tell you that these are the steps um and then you have to just continually go back to your why so we decided not to take funding because I was concerned about the impact of that on our mission. I wanted to build this very healthy organism of Odetta without any intervention. And I think it was really important for me to build something that didn't have people inside being like, go optimize this. 
and we don't care about your mission. And I know that you can get, you know, there's a whole kind of ecosystem of great investors who will support you in your mm -hmm. mission, but I just knew instinctively that I had to build a company that had no foreign intervention. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, so the moment, and there were there was a moment when I was looking at term sheets <laughs> and um, you said no I too. just said no. And there was a moment when we had that. That's a pressure tested moment. That's a moment. Mm -hmm. we, had, we had another moment where we had this incredible woman who you know went to this fancy school and she wanted to work for a company based in the US and her mission was not a lot. I could just tell that she wanted to join us for other reasons other than our mission. And so we said no. And so every step of the way it is like, I almost feel like it's like we are, you have to kind of like really protect it um, mm -hmm. with the people inside and like from the outside world, it's just full of distractions. And so funding was uh, a big one, but then also just like even more recently, we have like, all sorts of questions around, let's say we earn more income, um, where does that money go? And who owns a company? And so it's like, thinking about that alignment um, for a mm -hmm. business is something that I think about all of the time. Like I, I'm not really motivated to build a business where there's just a few people who get wealthy. Like mm -hmm. ultimately, like I wanna build a company where, you know, if the first 300 people on our team, if they can become millionaires, like that's my mission. Like mm -hmm. I, in more, 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 more ways than, than one, like I, I want to build a business that, um, where all of our extra income goes out and supports the communities. Like it is, it's really mission oriented. Mm -hmm. who, who is, <clears throat> excuse me, who is somebody that comes to mind when you say the word, uh, one of the first 300 to become a millionaire? <laughs> Who is somebody that comes to mind and what what do you think it means for them and how does that what does that do to you inside? Yeah, I mean amazing. Like I feel like I mean it's like I could die happy. Like that is what I want. I mean all of them I see all of their faces right now and it's like um I feel emotional like they trusted me. I went into this like very foreign country where I knew no one and mm -hmm. I was who knows who I was? It could have been like in the CIA. I mean, it could have been anyone. And um, the truth of it is that we got hundreds of women from all over the world to just make a promise and um, to each other. And um, yeah, for, you know, many of them are just kind of like working so hard and we're still bootstrapped. And so there's a lot that I can't yet do for them. Um, we want to pay more. We want to have all sorts of services for them to um, completely, you know, lead these extraordinary lives. And not just for them, I also want to build a forever company. And so we are thinking about like, okay, like, what do we need to get to the next level? But um, when I see all of their faces, um, many of them um, have just been with us uh, since the beginning. And um, that I will be so happy when one day um, they all become very wealthy in, in many different ways. Yeah. Well, what uh, what would be um, something that you think would be, um, uh, how, like I, I think one of the things I'm trying to get to with you is it's it, the, your measurement of success. How could you describe like we are successful when like what is an event that would happen or an impact that would have occurred that you're like, I I at least did phase, I did it. I did phase yeah. one. Not that success means the end, but like what is sort of like, I did it. 
It's so interesting. So when I first started the company, I had these like weird metrics that I set for myself. Um, weird in the sense that they just seemed so arbitrary. I was like, I want to want to build a platform for one million women, so we can kind of like have one million work, women working simultaneously, and that was kind of absurd. And I realized like, why one million? Like, what about a hundred thousand? What about ten thousand? And then ultimately, I was like, I will feel successful if I build a company for 1,000 women and if they are all happy and we're kind of like transforming their lives. And the greedier part of me would like that to be more like 10,000 and then have that kind of like, I'll feel really good about that number. Um, so yeah, so it's, you know, it's an arbitrary number, but um, it, the 10,000 number is one that I know that we can get to by ourselves. Mm -hmm. In other words, like this independent company, it's just kind of me and the Odettans and we're gonna build this business without any mm -hmm. foreign intervention. And I think we can get to that number. What are three things that you need to, uh, I would say, make it a forever company? What are three big things that you feel like you need to make it a forever company? I think- And not a company that just gets acquired because your mission goes away. Right. right, in and, a big way. Yeah, it is like you need, what is that? And I haven't figured that out yet. It's like kind of like what is, what's like the structure of a business that can live forever and kind of continue its values? Like, what does that look like? Who owns it? Um, who's running it? You know, what like, so it's kind of like a corporate governance structure. And um, thinking about some of the family businesses that um, are really amazing that have been around and like how do you kind of like um build that forever probably um number two is um a real career trajectory in our model now we have kind of like built out a place that's great for you know let's say five years of work but like how do we build a business like our odettans that's what we call them odettans mm -hmm. and they're asking us like catherine can you please build this so i can work here forever and so that my daughter can work here one day. Wow. And they're asking that from us. And so we need to figure that out. So that's number two. It's like, okay, like what does a business look like where it's kind of the opposite direction that um, the world is going where mm -hmm. you only go someplace for one year, but uh, where you can have kind of all of those phase levels of learning. And then probably three is um, like the learning machine. And so it's like, you know, kind of like continuing the culture of learning such that you know, in 50 years, we'll, we will not be doing what we do, do today. I mean, I think even in 10 years, um, mm -hmm. like we are in between kind of human and the machine. And so we're the bridge. And so we're going to be continually iterating. And so how do you kind of instill that in the culture of the business? Mm -hmm. So when, when do you sort of make a discovery on a new capability, right? So you're doing the machine learning, you're doing uh, a lot of data centric stuff. What is sort of a new capability that you would you got to go drive demand for, right? And yeah. then also have to have the talent pool for. What's kind of the next big one for you guys? We typically just listen to our customers on that. So they meet our team and they're like, this is great. Okay, build me this. Um, and so in that way, our customers are building the future of artificial intelligence. And so they're kind of like telling us where to go. And so I would say that we're, we're more of a listening machine. Um, I think the world of data science and kind of machine learning is very interesting. It still does require a lot of human intervention, but we would like to be that business that is able to handhold 
these companies, um, smaller businesses that don't have the resources that these big tech firms do to be able to do some of these smarter tooling around data. And so um, that's probably direction is just kind of a little bit up stack. Well, what, what is something that you're like, we have to avoid this, or what is something that you feel like is a future risk that you want to design a way to avoid that in the future? Um, like in terms of types of work? Yeah, just for the trajectory of the business or, you know, it could be types of work. What is sort of like, what is the, what is the risk out there that would keep you from getting to the next step? Yeah, I mean, we're that bridge, right, between humans and artificial intelligence. And so if we don't move fast enough, um, we get automated. And that happens, that happens all the time mm -hmm. with our workflows. And so that's a big risk, which is like kind of like, how do you stay um, ahead of that? And I think a lot of the ways we do that is through software. And so we're kind of like learning software. And so something gets automated and then, you know, but then we're kind of like running the process to build the next kind of human project. Okay. So that's what we're doing to prevent against that. Yeah. So like, are you... Um because uh, one of the ways that you know your auto your workflows get automated is if you share your workflows that you've designed, mm -hmm. right? So do you do any you know intellectual property sort of protection or things like that as you guys, uh, you know, algorithms are patentable. I have a I have a patent on an algorithm. Okay, yeah. so yeah. like I know that those are patentable, and it's largely a process. Yeah, it's a, the way data matriculates through a process, right? Yeah. It's a sequence of events. So are you doing anything to sort of protect the the intellectual property that you and your team create? We have some, yeah. And it's, um, it is, I think like kind of like maybe more doing more of that. A lot of times our clients are building kind of the IP and then we're the team that is support. But in the vision in the future, it would be that we have a set of kind of like building blocks and patentable technology that then we're sharing uh, with other customers that don't have the resources to build that. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, what what is um what's next for you guys? Yeah, so it's um I it's I try to think about kind of like where what do we want this year, and then we have a more kind of like existential longer term question. It's like, mm -hmm. what does Odetta look like, and um, how do I imagine it where it, it it's not so reliant on kind of like me or my role, and mm -hmm. then it's just like a machine that runs. Um, this year we're trying to get to 500 people, so 500 Odettans. Um, okay. And that's like, we'll then get us maybe next year closer to our 1,000 goal. And so um, we're hiring a lot. Um, we hire 25 to 50 new people every month. And so it's we're doing a lot on the on the hiring. Um, and I think the on that front, there's a lot of kind of boot camps that we are building that we can build to get people ready to work faster. Um, one of the things that is most exciting to me is, um, so we have a 10,000 person waiting list for our company. And that's both amazing and, and really sad. Um, mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the people that are waiting for work, uh, it's just kind of like a few simple tweaks where they would be able to participate in the market if kind of like either they had that training or they had that just like that first experience or that first person who took a chance on them. So how do we build that? Like for them, so we have kind of our vetted work platform. But then, like, what are the learning organisms that can then um, help these women get ready and get connected? So you have three hundred. You're going to five hundred, and you've got a waiting list of another ten thousand. Mm -hmm. And so, what you're 
and these are all similar skill sets, yes? Or you're just, it's maybe varying degrees of the skill set, because that's what you were saying is that like, we don't know how great some of these people are, but largely there's probably a, you know, low to very high capability of skills in, yeah. in the realm of what you're looking for. Yep. So I think what one of the things you're saying is you need the demand to show up. Yeah. Right. So what are you doing on that side to kind of go drive demand for, you know, getting getting to your thousand and then, you know, yeah. being able we to need more clients. I mean, we've been really focused on particular types of clients. So we have um, some of our clients are have been amazing. They have teams of kind of 50 to 75 people that are working for them. And so that type of client is really great for us because it provides very consistent work for our Dentons. Um, we do sales, so we're, it's just a B2B uh, machine. And mm -hmm. I think we probably need to do a lot more in, yeah. in marketing to tell our story um, so more people could use us. I mean, the truth is that outsourcing uh, pre-pandemic was being used, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily mainstream um, as much as it is now, but that was one of the big shifts in the pandemic that um, most small businesses, um, every tech startup is outsourcing. And so um, they're really trying to figure out like who are their partners and how do they do this? And um, it's being done. And so um, we really kind of accelerated a lot uh, with the pandemic. And I think there's a lot more we can do in terms of just like sharing our story with uh, companies, what we're good at specifically, so they know how to leverage us. That is amazing. Um, I have rapid fire questions okay. for you now. Um, but I, I think one of the things that is has been really awesome about your story is your uh, level of commitment is so high. Your level of compassion and care is so high. Your vision and your mission are super clear. And I uh, definitely want to know uh, what we can do to help because, like, there's it's a it's a pretty compelling uh, pretty compelling story that I hope you have a lot of runway to tell. Yeah. So super good. Well, a uh, couple of questions. Uh, so aside from the people in the Middle East and South uh, Asia, what's your favorite part about visiting that part of the world? Gosh, um, probably the most striking are the sounds, just being there, getting off the plane. Um, for me, it was the most extraordinary thing is just listening to the calls to prayer. So in Jordan and Pakistan, five times a day, there's this kind of sound that goes off that reminds people to kind of, you know, stop their worldly matters and like go inside and pray. And um, it's this beautiful sound. And so, um, yeah, that was my favorite part, actually. Well, do you still go to Pakistan? I am going at the end of this year. You are? So, yeah, now we have a lot of people to meet in person <laughs> who I haven't met. So you haven't been back since that first trip? That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Um, so you, you used to live in San Francisco. Uh, which do you enjoy the most between San Francisco or NYC and why? Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. I feel like I'll make enemies here. I love New York. Um, I'm a New Yorker. Compelled to say that. I, yeah, I just, I love New York. I love the energy. Um, you know, yes. So um, I, New York is just the energy of the people and you can just kind of like walk out uh, for a break and just walk anywhere. It doesn't matter. And just kind of like this endless discovery. Um, and, and why, you know what, I will say though, San Francisco, I'm very into nature and to camping outside. And so I would, I had these like amazing weekend trips where I would take my car and go to Big Sur. And I don't oh, think wow. you're allowed to do this, but I would um, 
drive to Big Sur and then they have these overlooks and I would wait until kind of like the cops were gone and I would um, park there and then sleep there. And I would do that. I've done that so many times and it's just like amazing to wake up on the cliffs of Big Sur. Oh my goodness. So amazing. Well, you know, on the New York side, like, are you a pizza person? Yeah. What's your favorite place to get pizza? So I think Brooklyn has better pizza than Manhattan. Um, now, now now you're they, an enemy. You're creating <laughs> enemies within enemy territory. Oh gosh, it's terrible. But I will say that, um, you know, I think for a pizza place to be good, it has to be nearby. Like who wants to this is true. go so far and like sit down and like wait in lines. And I mean, you'll Do wait you mean in you lines. don't want to be Dave Portnoy that drives, it goes all over the US no, to find I pizza don't places. Want to, I want a place where it's like late at night and I need a, a slice of pizza. So um, I go to Village Pizza, 13th and 8th. It's right near where I live. It's fantastic. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. Well, what's a must see attraction that's kind of off the touristy list in NYC? Um, Cloisters. I go to the Cloisters. Okay. Have you been there? I've it's not a, been there. It's kind of like this museum that is overlooking the Hudson River, and it's um, it's really peaceful. Actually, yeah. it's kind of it's a good place to get peace in oh. the city of lights. Well, there you go. Well, uh, give a shout out to your brothers. What are their names, uh, and what's one word that they'd use to describe you? Oh gosh. Um, okay, so um, it's kind of like Goodwill Hunting, but my brothers are um, James, and then I'll do order of birth, which okay. is really important okay. in our family. It James. <laughs> And then Andrew within the quads now. So Andrew was two minutes older than me. It was Andrew, then myself, and then Jeffrey, then John. And um, they'd probably say some mixture of like, kind of like super independent or determined and adventurous. Like okay. as I was always going like some far fung location. Yeah. Yeah. Are they travelers? Yeah. We're they kind are. of all travelers, but I. Do you travel in a wolf pack? I'm no, we don't like to. to. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we like to. I mean, it's funny. I when I was um, in my twenties, I moved to Southeast Asia, and I had a brother who was living in. Um, he was living in Hong Kong and then Tokyo. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah, and then my other brother lives in Singapore, and then I have one in Berlin. But like, so we kind of like quest for being unique. Coming back to that, like everyone got their location and learned their language. It's like I own France because I speak French. Okay. And, it's like we all have our different locations that we um, that we live, but we don't ever live in the same location. So you don't travel in a wolf pack. <laughs> no, it. never. Totally understand. All right. Well, if uh, you could place a billboard on a street that only girls on bicycles ride by or ride on the street, uh, who? Hold on. I'm I'm uh, this is a long question. Just a second. Uh, Okay, if you could basically, if you could place a billboard on a street that only little girls rode by and could see, what would you have on there and why? Yeah, that's easy. Um, I would have uh, your dreams are valid, mm. exclamation point, and be really, you know, kind of like a big, big sign. Um, I think the message is not to lose yourself. And even if you're in an environment where your dream seems outsized or you don't know anyone else who has that same dream, um, that it is valid and it is yours for the taking. That is so, so good. Well, um, you know, what? what is the thing that um, uh, you're looking forward to most in the next three months? Um, I'm going to Sicily. Oh my gosh, <laughs> traveler, it's like yeah. everywhere. Okay, yeah. so are you going to Catania? Um, maybe, I don't know yet. Oh I'm, my goodness. Should you I go, go to Catania? Yeah, I would go to Catania. Oh yeah, wow. I, that's where I, so I've been to Sicily, spent a lot of time in Catania, 
It's okay, beautiful. Okay, we'll go there. Amazing. Oh, wow. Mm. I am uh, going go with- Go see the volcano. Uh, oh, yeah. I think we are going to do that. I'm doing that with one of my best friends, and um, she's a chef, so she's organizing most oh. of the itinerary, and okay, I'm very that's excited. Amazing. That's amazing. We'll enjoy that. It was great to have you, Catherine. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you so much.